Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you the second of a series of parallel papers presented at our 2009 annual conference, Global Bioethics, Emerging Challenges Facing Human Dignity. In this paper, Michael Brooks, MD, explores the outcome movement in evidence-based medicine and medical education. Dr. Brooks' presentation is entitled, The Global Outcomes Movement, Is It Compatible with Medicine? I wanted to talk to you a little bit today about uh, the outcomes movement in medicine. Now, if you're in medicine, you're probably very familiar with this concept but I think I need to introduce it a little bit more for the group. You know, the outcomes movement is a, it sounds like a funny term, but it is a term used by the movement, and movement is a good term because it really has a very broad conception of, medica- of uh, medicine, education, and human interaction. It sort of has its own characteristic worldview. Uh, am I projecting okay? Is the room not too big for my voice? Uh, it's... Uh, Proponents actually often describe it as being a new paradigm in medicine, uh, which is a term that I'm not going to use because uh, Kuhn's word there is overused in general and incorrectly applied here, but that sort of gives you an idea of the uh, grandiosity that the movement claims for itself. Um, And, uh, you know, so I think for our purposes, uh, we can just think of it as a way of looking at medicine differently. I'm going to draw examples largely from U.S. and Canadian practice, but in keeping with the theme of the conference, I should point out that this is global in scope. Uh, If I just look at uh, one of its children, competency-based medical education, I mean, this is being uh, adopted in Argentina, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, uh, Spain, France, Germany, all over the place, Singapore. So as we might gather from the name, uh, the outcomes movement is uh, interested in outcomes, either patient outcomes uh, in the case of clinical medicine or in educational outcomes uh, in the case of medical education. Uh, a second characteristic would be its interest purely in objective data. It's very much tied in with the uh, scientific materialist uh, viewpoint. We're really only interested in things we can measure, and things that we can't measure aren't really important. Uh, Another characteristic is the focus on top-down constructions, things like practice guidelines, where a group of smart people get together and decide what everyone else should be doing. These are very characteristics. Uh, In medical education, it's a bunch of people getting together and deciding what it is specified out in great detail uh, that the students should be learning. So probably most of you are familiar with evidence-based medicine, which is part of this movement. Uh, Competency-based medical education I've already referred to. I'll try and focus a little bit more because of our limited time on competency-based medical education. U.S. is a nice example. The ACGME, uh, which is an accrediting body for graduate medical education uh, in this country, has this thing called the Outcome Project. Uh, And in Canada, they have this thing called CanMeds, which helpfully informs us that competency-based medical education is more than just a utilitarian philosophy. But I think in order to understand the competency movement, we really have to understand where it comes from. And to do this, we have to turn back to behaviorism. Now, many of you may have gotten a little bit of uh, 
behaviorism when you were in grade school. Uh, it was a common thing in uh, textbooks and so on. It was a school of experimental psychology which really reached its heyday back in the 1930s to 1950s. You know, uh, B.F. Skinner, I think his first name was William Watson, all these. Uh, and it was an American movement, interestingly. What's interesting about behaviorism is the way it views people. People are black boxes. What you're interested in is only the input and the output. What behaviorism says is that science can't know anything about what's in the black box. In other words, internal states. You know, what is the motivation of this person? What is this person thinking? Why did that person do that? All these things are unknowable according to behaviorism and furthermore, uh, not really worthy of study, not science, right? Well, what you're thinking, what motivates you, how you feel, that's not science. What science is, what we can observe that you do. So, and does anybody remember from grade school what the input and the output is called for a person? Stimulus and response. Remember that stuff? That's what we're talking about. Uh, and because human inputs are extremely difficult to quantify and measure, I mean, how exactly do I define, you know, my inputs right now? Uh, behaviorists are really interested in very controlled experimental situations. They tend to randomize tasks when they study tasks and decision making and so on into a bunch of tiny little pieces uh, that they then claim could be measured uh, objectively and scientifically. Uh, and in this view, and this is still unfortunately used today, learning is defined as a change in behavior. And education is defined as behavior modification. And that sounds a little creepy to me, but you know, there, I've, I found some uh, medical school websites, which are obviously current, explaining to people that teach in medical schools how to write these behavior objectives and so on that we'll get to in a second in precisely those terms. You know, what we're doing here is behavior modification. That's what learning is, behavior modification. Now, the interesting thing about behaviorism, I don't have time to go into it, but the whole thing sort of fell apart, wheels came off in the late 50s, early 60s, because it had a lot of really severe problems in terms of its, its explanatory power and so on. We're not going to go into that. But the interesting thing was, at the very same time that it was sort of falling apart as a scientific movement, the educational bureaucracy, I think, is probably the appropriate term, uh, in the U.S. picked up on behaviorism and started, there was a model propagated by a man named uh, Mager who got all our public school teachers in the 60s and 70s writing these behavioral objectives for their kids. Another characteristic that you see is the word training rather than education because what we're devising is a training program for a black box to get it to do what we want. Right? That's what education is, according to the behaviorist movement. So, you know, there are a lot of problems with this. Uh, first off, the claims for objectivity are really kind of ludicrous on the face of it. The, every time I use the word objective uh, throughout this talk, you should imagine the air quotes around it. Okay? I would say the word objective a lot. Um, but it's uh, a nice example, I think, and again, something produced for us by the outcomes movement in nursing education is uh, anybody ever been sick, been in the hospital, in pain, needed some pain medication? What does the nurse ask you? 
rate your scale, rate your pain on a scale of one to ten, right? Because I can quantify that. You know, I can draw a chart, I can write it down. That's you know, that's objective data. That's not subjective. It's objective data. So you can see how flimsy this notion of uh, objective data is. Real objective data, of course, would be observer-independent, which this is not. To look at competency-based medical education, for example, if I could really evaluate someone's competency objectively, in other words, in an observer-independent fashion, I could have the janitor tell me whether my surgeon was competent at appendectomies because my checklist would be so detailed that that janitor could step into the operating room, appropriately tired, of course, and make sure that the surgeon was doing all the steps that they were supposed to do. And uh, for those of you who think I'm exaggerating, this is exactly what medical education is turning into right now. There was a uh, recent paper, and I pick on this, uh, not because I mean to be mean to the authors, but just, it's just such a classic example, talking about how do you teach emergency medicine residents to do a lumbar puncture, for those of you who aren't in the medical field, what, what, what's called a spinal tap. Right? It's a fairly simple medical procedure that you learn during medical school. How do you teach somebody to do that? Well, in the old days, you would just say, well, you have them watch one, and then you have them work with somebody who knows how to do one, and they do a couple, and they know how to do it. Now, not okay anymore. Uh, this paper looked at a scoring system, which, which subdivided this very simple procedure into a total of 26 major steps and 44 minor steps of objective data now, because I've got an objective scoring system. And you know, this is brought to you by the, uh, the outcomes movement. And of course, despite all the so-called objectivity, there was still a tremendous amount of inter-observer variability, because it's, you know, it's really just subjective data. We're just playing games here. So another important point that I mentioned a little bit is the interest in aggregate statistical data. It's the outcomes movement. It's not the outcome movement. You know, the outcome that you care about is the outcome with your particular patient, right? And if you're a patient, that's the outcome that you care about. The outcomes movement is not interested in that. That's anecdotal. That's dismissed. That is not worthy of scientific study. That's not interesting. So it's in direct conflict with any model of traditional medicine that you care to use, whether you, you like the Hippocratic tradition of friendship between uh, physician and patient, whether you like the covenant model, whether you like the contract model. It's not consistent. But the most important thing about the outcomes movement is the power structure uh, that we're looking at here. It's a very top-down uh, model in the sense that it's a, it's a management model. It's a model that you know, the elite sort of get together and decide what to do and specify everything, as I already alluded to. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Alistair McIntyre, I don't have a chance to go into this in great detail, but he has some very useful con uh, concepts here. If we think about medicine as a McIntyrean practice, then what the outcomes movement is, according to McIntyre, would be an institution, and what the institution is interested in is not the goods internal to the practice, you know, the outcome of your patient, but how effective is it, you know, these managerial concepts. Um, so the only moral view that you get in outcomes movement is this uh, utilitarian ends justify the means sort of calculus that goes on. And like McIntyre points out with bureaucratic managers, this movement has the tendency to lay grandiose claims to powers of prediction and control. Uh, far beyond what they can actually demonstrate. So right now, we're in the midst of all these really 
crazy claims about cost savings, benefits to help, paradigm shifts, you still get referred to the circle of continuous improvement, all these things which, you know, if we only adopt the magic program and do what people say. So, you know, I mentioned earlier competency-based medical education. So if we look at, uh, and this uh, is a little dry to read these, but there are these things that the ACGME calls core competencies, uh, CANMEDS calls them roles. The core competencies of a physician, according to the ACGME, are patient care, medical knowledge, practice-based learning and improvement, interpersonal and communication skills, professionalism, and systems-based practice. And the ACGME requires their residency programs now to evaluate competencies in all six of these areas, evaluated by dependable measures. There's the uh, objectivity again. But how exactly you do that, if you sort of look through the medical literature, has been a great source of consternation, because nobody's really even sure what these things mean. Uh, You know, my resident is competent in systems-based practice. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, But I have to assess it. I'm required to. You know, interpersonal and communication skills, it's actually been shown by some very clever work in cognitive science that there isn't any such thing as a generalized communication skills. Uh, in other words, if you teach somebody to communicate well in one area, it doesn't translate to anything else. There's no such thing as a generalized competency, but we're measuring it anyway. So uh, I think I am probably need to cut because uh, I want to have some time for a discussion. So let me turn to an example of this in action. I mentioned the lumbar puncture thing already. But let's look at the OSCE. The OSCE is, uh, that stands for Objective Structured Clinical Exam. And it's now a requirement to get licensed as a physician. Uh, It's part of uh, USMLE. And the way this works is you have a standardized patient. I prefer the term fake patient. But they have a standardized uh, patient who they teach to simulate some illness or disease process, okay? And then you have your medical student or resident examine them, do what in medical parlance is called a history and physical, while somebody else, like me, I've done this before, sits behind a two-way mirror, you know, with headphones on and sort of grades it. And they get graded by me, and they actually get graded by the fake patient. But because this is all suffused with this behaviorism, you can't just say, well, you know, gosh, the student did a really good job uh, assessing this patient. Uh, I give him an A. There's like six pages of checklist. You know, I'm supposed to be, you know, I can't even watch what's going on because I'm constantly have my head down checking off all these things the student's supposed to be doing. And uh, so, you know, important stuff like physician-patient interaction has been turned into a checklist. You know, I can't just say, well, he seemed like he had a good rapport with the patient. The patient can't just say, well, you know, I liked the student. I have to check off student doctor introduces himself slash herself. Student doctor maintains eye contact with patient because that's objective, right? If I just give him an A, that's subjective. But if I'm checking the box, it's objective data. So that's all very nice. Sounds tedious. But what's really interesting about the OSCE, and this is known, by the way, this is, you know, this is published research, this isn't a surprise, is that if you run an experienced physician or a skilled diagnostician through an OSCE, they score much worse than your medical student. So what is it exactly that I'm measuring with this thing, and why am I using it? You know, further, I will tell you that based on my experience 
rating medical students, that the students that do the best at this thing are the ones who are the very worst with patients. Uh, they're the cold mechanical type who don't engage people at all, uh, but they're really good at memorizing the list of what they need to do to fake being engaged, right? So they hit, you know, in order, every one of those, you know, checkpoints down the list, you know? It's like, you know, the robot walks in the room, runs down the list, and leaves, or just, you know, in reality, when they're out in practice, they'll order like a zillion tests, and you'll be out the door. It's really interesting, and I think, you know, my last uh, couple minutes here, it's a failure of scientific materialism to understand medicine, to understand what doctors know, to understand how doctors learn, and to understand what goes on in that uh, interaction. And this is all the more interesting because it's known uh, from several decades worth of work in the fields of expertise and decision making and cognitive science and artificial intelligence that you can't specify what an expert knows as a big list of rules or a checklist or however you want to conceptualize that. It doesn't work. What makes the expert is the ability to apply all that knowledge that they have back here to a specific situation. In other words, when do I ignore the rule? You know, how do I know which rules to use? You know, which rules apply here? What's my goal? I mean, none of these are things that you learn by, uh, by being in class and you know, taking notes. And this has been known for a long time. You know, 2,500 years ago, uh, Aristotle describes this process with a word phrenesis, which is usually translated as practical wisdom. Uh, Michael Polanyi, uh, about 50 years ago, describes this as tacit knowledge. You know, it's this type of knowledge that a master passes down to an apprentice. If you imagine, uh, imagine a master sculptor teaching an apprentice sculptor, there are things that the master knows that he or she cannot articulate, can't write down, but by working through examples, the apprentice picks up. It's just like medicine. I mean, you don't become a doctor after memorizing all that crap for the first two years of medical school, right? You become a doctor by working with patients, by doing an apprenticeship. You are working with, uh, you are working with a trained physician, seeing how they relate to patients, see the, how they pick up on nonverbal clues, seeing how they manage things, and hopefully internalizing some of that yourself. And that's what residency used to be, was just a big apprenticeship. And it's extremely valuable, but that type of knowledge is completely dismissed by, you know, our friends in the outcomes movement. Um, and it's sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of how science advances. You know, the big advances in science are not created by a drug company funding a big new randomized controlled trial testing some new lipid-lowering agent that's slightly better than the last one. Right? The big advances in medicine are made by a physician who notices that their ulcer patient doesn't have ulcers anymore after they've had a couple rounds of antibiotics for some other thing that they had wrong with them and thinking about that. Right? Advances in medicine come precisely from the localized expert looking at what is dismissed as anecdotal evidence, right? So I'm not really sure, I mean, I understand the history of how we got here, 
but I'm not sure how we allow medicine to uh, turn into this and to evolve into something that ignores even scientific research in other fields. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a, a fad. You know, the business world goes through these fads, you know, like uh, uh, just-in-time manufacturing, uh, total quality improvement, uh, Six Sigma, uh, and so on. It's sort of like a little fad that was going through medicine that got frozen and that we've been stuck with for the last couple of decades because it happens to serve very nicely the purposes of managed care, uh, big, big corporations, state bureaucracies, and so on, who really want to be telling physicians exactly what to do and what to learn about. And it shouldn't come as a surprise, as a concluding point, that the ACGME Outcome Project, for example, which has forced us to do a lot of these things, is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is probably the biggest uh, proponent of managed care in this country. I mean, they really put their money where their, uh, where their philosophy is. Um, so it's, uh, it's very interesting to think about. I've only been able to sort of touch on the surface of it. That was The Global Outcomes Movement, Is It Compatible with Medicine? by Michael Brooks, MD. Dr. Brooks is assistant professor and the residency program director in the Department of Radiology at the University of Kentucky. A print version of the paper abstract is available on our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.